Good morning. I'm John. Everybody say hi, John. Good, I feel good. I keep getting these ads on my iPad. I'm learning, because I'm an old guy, I'm learning to preach from an iPad. And, and they keep popping up. And like one says, 40-year-old woman wakes up to realize that her financial guru husband has $520,000 in hidden debt. So that wasn't you, Brad, was it? I, I, <laughs> Brad's the only financial guru I know, so uh, glad to know that wasn't you. Um, anyway, today's Christmas Eve. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And uh, is there room in your heart today for Jesus? Today we're talking about the kingship of Jesus. A king is born in Matthew chapter 2, in verse 1. The scripture says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw the star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, immediately we have our kerfuffle here. Uh, It's during the time of King Herod. Uh, There was already a king, one king, but apparently there is a newborn king, and uh, this could be a problem for Herod because I think he knew that this was not his progeny. Uh, and uh, so, and Herod was a pretty ruthless guy. I'll tell you a little bit about him. King Herod uh, is uh, referred to by historians as Herod the Great. And he did not ascend to the throne as a result of royal lineage. Uh, he was an Edomite whose family converted to Judaism, not of the line of David. Uh, Herod rose to power through political means, through prowess. And he was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate about 40 B.C. At that time, Jerusalem was under control of the Parthian Persian Empire. So Herod had to actually set out with a Roman army in uh, about 37 B.C. and capture Jerusalem and secure Judea as a client state of Rome. So this is approximately 40 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, Herod was notorious as a brutal dictator. He used merciless methods to control his population. Uh, He employed a network of spies to weed out and eliminate political opponents. Uh, He even had one of his wives, including her mother and grandmother, and three of his sons executed. Nice guy, huh? Uh, Because he deemed them to be threats to his power. Nevertheless, in spite of his, you know, failings, Herod ruled over a time of general peace and prosperity for the region, so uh, the people put up with it. Uh, and it was that the reconstruction of the Jewish temple uh, began, and that would have been the temple that Jesus visited during his ministry. Uh, during Jesus' actual ministry on earth, the temple was in the midst of a reconstruction process. Uh, that would have been part of the... Uh, his experience. So, so here we have a king who's got a stable rule for the most part, and into this scene come these weirdos from the east. 
these guys show up, wise guys, excuse me, wise men. Uh, they were, from Herod's point of view, they were troublemakers. They were disruptors. Uh, we know that King Herod had issues with the Persians. The term magi comes from an old Persian word indicating members of the educated priestly caste. They were schooled in the ancient arts. They were smart. Uh, we get our word magician from this root, um, I suppose because magi could amaze with their knowledge. They could blow things up. And their knowledge of Judaism was likely passed down from the Jewish exiles that had been taken to Babylon six centuries previously, uh, among them being Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, the three guys in the fiery furnace. Uh, now, the wise men may have descended from Jewish exiles uh, who had remained in Babylon, but we don't know that for sure. But they knew the scripture, and they knew to come to Jerusalem to worship this new king. The worship part is interesting. The Magi are inquiring about a new king, a newborn king. They are indicating their intent to pay homage to him. The term here indicates a humble submission of one toward a sovereign. This wasn't just a ceremonial visit. They were essentially extending full recognition to a new head of state. And further, they were pledging their loyalty, their service to him. I got, I got to tell you, this was not good news to Herod. This was disruptive. This was subversive. Uh, and it wasn't good news for the people who had benefited and uh, reaped the rewards of the stability and prosperity that had occurred under Herod's government. Uh, this was a harbinger that an old order was about to be disruptive. And so in Matthew 2.3, we read these words, King Herod heard this and he was disturbed, disturbed to say the least. Now, I'll have to admit something here and my wife will confirm this. Uh, I'm one of these guys that really doesn't like change. Are you with me? How many of you are kind of, you know, okay, thank you, Zaina. Uh, no, glad to know I'm not the only one. Uh, I don't like change, especially when things are going relatively well for me and my family. Uh, I've been accused of being a conservative. Can you believe that? They call me a conservative. <laughs> I almost voted for Jimmy Carter. Come on. Uh, half of my friends from college have kids named Reagan. I, uh, you know, I grew up in, in that era. Some of, some of us are called conservative uh, because, well, simply because we haven't abandoned the authority of the Bible. And... Uh, I'm good with that. That's my tribe. But some of us are called conservative because we don't like change. Hmm, that's interesting. And it's not the same thing. Uh, the problem is that God calls us to change, to repent. That's what the word repent actually means, metanoia, which means to change your mind, to change your worldview, to deconstruct and to reconstruct, to repudiate an old value set, and to embrace the values of God's kingdom. 
If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, if you are going to acknowledge Jesus as king, then it will bring about change in your life. Not just once, but it is a lifestyle of embracing the leadership of Christ. And it comes over time, sometimes incrementally, sometimes in big chunks, but you always have to be in that posture of saying, God, I was wrong. What I used to think was wrong, and now I think something different. You're the king. You get to decide what is truth. And I submit myself to you. Wouldn't it be cool if politicians did that? Herod, not so much. Uh, wouldn't it be cool if politicians just stepped aside graciously when their time to lead had come to an end? <laughs> Do you ever hear one say, well, you know, God says there's a new sheriff in town. I'll just uh, cede power and let my successor take the throne. No worries. Can I have a pension? <laughs> pension would be good. Well, you know, Herod, like I suppose many politicians, didn't take that route. Uh, he was going to hang on to power. He was going to hang on with an iron grip as long as he possibly could. So he assembles his own wise men, his priests and scribes, and they go and search the scripture to find out where this, quote, pretender, uh, unquote, was to be born, and they discover uh, that he's from the line of David, and he would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, now, consider this. The line of David had been muddling around out there for centuries without actually ruling practically, and so they were there. And uh, they were something to contend with. But I suppose Herod was thinking at this moment it wasn't going to resurge on his watch. Herod's men find the prophecy uh, from the prophet Micah. In Micah, we read these words, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come forth for me, one to be ruler over Israel, Micah 5, chapter 5, verse 2. So Herod sends them to Bethlehem, and he asks them to report back once they've found the child so that he could come and pay homage to, that's what he said. Herod, of course, was lying. He had no intention of worshiping the child. Uh, he intended to kill the child. Indeed, that's exactly what he tried to do. He tried to ensure the death of the child by the most brutal, brutal means you can imagine, uh, by uh, arranging to kill all of the children born in the region for the last couple of years, uh, a time that he had chosen because uh, it was within the time that the wise men said they had seen the star. Um, now, Herod was a very ruthless man. Some persons are so arrogant and presumptuous, they think they can abrogate the word of God by their actions. They think they can counterman what God says by their own choices, their own actions. Others, you know, more subtly, others just twist the word of God to endorse their own self-interest. But it's the same thing. Neither is worshiping God. Neither is worshiping God. You can deny the word, you can twist the word, but that's not worship. Worship is yielding power. And we hate that. 
That's the thing we love. Uh, that's the thing that drives us. In fact, there's a whole philosophy built around it. Uh, power, 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 power to determine my own destiny, power to make my own choices. Yielding authority, yielding privilege, that's what it means to worship the king. So, back to our story. The Magi, the Magi, uh, they hurry off to Bethlehem, and on their way, they once again see the star, and the star leads them straight to the house where Jesus was. And they bowed down and they worshiped the child. In Matthew 2, verse 11, we read, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There were three gifts. Today we're looking at gold. Uh, you all have a piece of gold near you on the chair. Everybody grab your gold, hold it up. Uh, it appears that some of you have eaten your gold. Uh, <laughs> Oh, well. Now, you can eat it. It's fine. You know, with the science of alchemy, we can actually turn gold into chocolate, which is what we've done. Because of its scarcity and great value, gold was associated in particular with royalty. According to 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba had brought gold in great abundance as a gift to King Solomon. Uh, by bringing gold, the wise men were affirming that they considered Jesus to be a true king. Providentially, the gold would come in handy in funding the family's hastily arranged trip to Egypt where they would live as refugees until Herod died. Herod was trying to kill this baby boy. Now, today, again, we're considering what does it mean to worship Jesus as king? What does it mean to worship him as king? I want to give you just a couple of, well, actually four points. Uh, first, first, it means to recognize that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. I want you to think about the words that the angel who visited Mary spoke when he announced to that young virgin that she would bear a son. In Luke chapter 1 verse 30 we find these words, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Angels say that a lot. Angels must be scary. Um, they say that a lot. Do not be afraid Mary, you have found favor with God. Now that's an interesting thing to say to a 16 or 18 year old or however old she was, we don't know. Uh, an interesting thing for her to say uh, when she's getting ready to go through quite an ordeal, you know, she's submitting herself to God, but that didn't mean life was going to be easy. She was going to go through a mess. And yet, the scripture says that she was blessed. She had found favor with God. Just because life is tough for you doesn't mean you don't have God's favor. Amen. Amen. Somebody say amen. Amen. And so the angel goes on, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus 
And let's, let's consider who this Jesus is. He will be great and will be, call, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the line of David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Jacob, that's the grandson of Abraham. That's uh, the one whose name was called Israel. Uh, So, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. This is what was said to Mary. So Jesus was to be born king of the Jews. We cannot understand Jesus unless we understand him as the Jewish Messiah. The story of Jesus doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It begins in Mesopotamia where God calls Abraham to go to a land God would show him And God promised to give to Abraham the land and that his descendants would be as the stars in the sky and as the sands of the sea. And that through his seed, through Abraham's seed, all of the people of the world would be blessed. So Abraham's grandson Jacob becomes the heir of that promise. God changes his name to Israel, which means prince of God. And his children become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, and thus a nation is born. And after the nation is established in the land, God chooses the descendants of David to be the rightful rulers of his people. Jesus is from the line of David. Jesus was the lawful ruler of Israel. Jesus was a legitimate threat to Herod's power. But God's ways are not human ways, as we shall see. You see, it turns out that Jesus is really the remnant of the nation of Israel. He's the one faithful one to the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And he represents the nation in himself. And the Apostle Paul takes on this theme when he says that those of us who are in Christ have become part of God's people. We are Abraham's seed because we are related to Christ by the new birth. So Jesus is the King of Israel but he's also our king, those of us who are in Christ. So, Jesus, the rightful king of a people that God has established for himself. Secondly, we acknowledge that Jesus will establish justice. Now, you want justice, don't you? I wanted justice this morning when somebody cut me off on the freeway. Justice! I was sitting at a traffic light this morning, and uh, I needed to, I, I was trying to get here by, um, you know, 845, because Pastor Dan said I had to be here at 845 for sound check. I was running a little bit late, and you know how it is, there was a guy in front of me, he was at the light, he was twiddling with his phone, and I'm telling you, a full three quarters of a second went by after that light turned green, 
and I was losing patience. I wanted justice. <laughs> justice, in our eyes, can often be quite petty, <laughs> I have to admit. Jesus will establish justice. You know, that's a big deal. Most of us really don't want justice. We want mercy. If, uh, you know, I get outraged because uh, you think I did something that I didn't do. Well, if you knew everything I did, maybe I shouldn't be so outraged. Justice. Justice is a scary thing because God knows the secrets of our hearts. The prophet Isaiah wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, on the child's shoulders. He will shoulder the government, the reign. And he will be called, listen to this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We live in an unjust world. Virtually everyone seems to know this. A fair as humans, we maintain this stubborn belief in some moral, ethical standard to which we must live up, but none of us really does it. The Greeks called it the logos, or the divine reason. Uh, in ancient uh, China, they referred to it as the Tao, uh, the wisdom of the universe uh, with which we must align our lives. It seems that every culture has devised some notion of a transcendent order an idyllic vision towards which we must strive in order to attain to justice. But the human vision is very cloudy, is it not? We disagree. We don't all agree on the right definition of justice. Uh, cultures have competing narratives. There are colonizers and decolonizers, each trying to carve out their own slice of Eden. Pardon the uh, reference to the church. Um, <laughs> each driven by a passionate sense of entitlement, are we that different? We are all colonizers at some point, driven from a garden to which we cannot return. We're all refugees at some point, seeking a home where we can live in peace. You know, as, as the saying goes, we're all Los Angelinos. We all came from somewhere. Uh, okay, you guys are too young. <laughs> So we grope around in darkness and fear, crying out for justice, but not really quite sure what it looks like. You know, we, we cry, no justice, no peace. But I got to tell you something, there will be no justice and no peace until the people of the world bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father until he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, there will not be justice. No humanly devised government will ever bring forth 
the perfect justice of God. These are temporary institutions. Certainly they are ordained by God to restrain evil for a season uh, through threats of violence which would be unnecessary in a just kingdom ruled by God uh, and enticements of prosperity which also would be unnecessary in a just kingdom ruled by God and these threats and enticements are enough to keep self-serving human beings from descending into total chaos and destruction so Governments are useful, but governments shall never bring about the kingdom of God. Nation shall rise against nation. Jesus said this for a fact. It will continue until the Lord comes. No nation has a guaranteed future. America is not the new Israel. America is Babylon, and we live as exiles in this world which the Bible metaphorically refers to as Babylon. And according to the Apostle Peter, we are citizens of a new country, of a kingdom that is eternal. And we are aliens and strangers in this world, and that's why you need to read your Bible, because that's what it teaches. And the kingdom of God is manifest through the church. Wait a second, where'd that come from? Okay, let me give you my point here. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples, whom do the people say that I am? And they answered, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others the prophet. He asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he was the one to blurt out. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's answer was crystal clear. He identified Jesus as the Messiah. The word means anointed one, the rightful king of Israel. People was right. Peter was right. But he didn't understand the whole picture. Peter thought Jesus had come to reestablish a nation. But Jesus had a bigger picture in mind. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter was right. Jesus was wrong. And I tell you, you are Peter. Something wrong? Thank you, Pastor. Let's go back to the verse. Okay. So, and Jesus answered him. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You see, only, you can only perceive these things spiritually. Uh, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And here's the mind blower here, okay? He says, and on this rock I will build my, does somebody help me out here? My church, that's right. Where did that come from? I mean, this was, you know, they're dancing. Oh, boy, a kingdom's coming, you know. And, and suddenly, you know, that ah! moment comes in here, and it's like, anybody ever think about death, you know? It's one of those moments. Church, where'd that come from? What's the church? The word was used to describe the synagogue, you know, the tribe, the, you know, the, the, the followers, you know. Oh, come on, Jesus, you got to think bigger than that. We're, we're establishing a nation here, not, not some 
church. <laughs> and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Wow. This is one of those moments. The church, the ecclesia, what is that? That's the fellowship, that's the community. It seemed like a small vision to Peter, but to one who had national, nationalistic aspirations. But Jesus had a much larger vision. He envisioned a global community that transcends national borders, ethnic identities. The church is the family of God. We together are a family of God, a global family of God, joined under the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ, our loyalty being to Christ himself. Wherever Jesus was, the kingdom of God was present. Wherever God's people bow down and proclaim Jesus as Lord, the kingdom of God is manifest. Jesus said, and here's another one of those moments, he said, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning my kingdom does not arise from the systems, from the institutions of this world. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. They didn't. They didn't. Unfortunately for us, too many of God's people would rather fight for the privileges of the kingdom than to bow down to the king. And that's truth. And we must beware of that spirit. The Father has called us to submit to the authority of Christ did you know that it was during the Christmas season that my family came to Christ? I was 12 years old, and uh, it was Christmas, and my father and my mother and I were together, and we hadn't been to church in a long time. And my grandmother came to visit. Granny was a deeply devout woman, and she insisted that uh, we take her to church. So we took her to church. And I sat through the service, didn't hear a word that was spoken, except at the end, when my dad had responded to an altar call, come to the front and announce that he was turning his life over to Jesus. And I look up and I hear my dad's name, you know, it's crazy. I'm like, oh my goodness. And, and so the next evening, it was a Monday evening, uh, what happened? The pastor came to our house. And he explained to us what it meant to be a Christian. And so during the Christmas season, we came to Christ. We came to Christ. I was baptized, and our family submitted to the authority of Christ, and our family was transformed. My dad had been a heavy drinker. He'd been abusive. He was changed, and our family was changed. And I, I, I've been in church ever since. Lots, a lot of times. He calls us to submit to his authority. That's what it means to acknowledge him as Lord. In Romans 10, 9, the Apostle Paul said, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever studied the life and teachings of Jesus? Jesus had an ethic. Did you know that? 
That's why you need to read the Bible and read the Gospels. He taught us how to treat our enemies. He taught us how to treat our abusers. Jesus had a sexual ethic about marriage and divorce and gender. I'm so grieved when I see families torn apart by selfishness, hearts left in pieces by those who walk away from intimate relationships. I want Jesus to heal the families and heal the nations. There's so much strife and anxiety and anger in this world. And it's not just among the nations, it's in our own families. Jesus had an ethic of generosity. This is why you need to read the Bible, read the Gospels. Jesus was there at creation. He knows the kinds of behaviors that contribute to human flourishing, as well as those that rip out our own hearts and destroy us emotionally, physically, and spiritual, spiritually. Things that victimize ourselves and our neighbors. And he calls us to be servants. That's the ethics of Jesus. He wrote to the Philippians, and I paraphrase, don't be selfish or conceited, but humbly think of others as more important than yourselves. Look out for other people's interests, not just your own. Take on the attitude of Jesus, who was God, but emptied himself of his divine privilege and became a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient. Ah, we hate that word. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I want you to know that that whole section is introduced by the words, have this mind in you. Follow this example. This is the way. This is the way. The way of Jesus. Yet we think we know better. But we don't. If you want to receive the Savior, you have to receive him as king and you must accept that he will bring about justice and all that that implies now here's the good news and I close with this as many as received him the Apostle John said even to those who believe on his name as many as received him to them he gave the privilege to become sons of God sons of God we come bowing down to worship we are received as sons and daughters by a father who is delighted to receive us into his presence he is waiting for you. He is waiting for you. I want everyone to bow your head for just one moment. Have you received the King? Have you acknowledged that He is Lord? That He gets to define what is just, what is true, what is righteous. And we must submit to Him. Let earth receive her king. Let each one in your heart today receive him as king. Are you receiving Jesus as your king today? If you're receiving Jesus as king for the first time today, just take a moment, lift your hand just to the Father to say, Jesus, today I acknowledge you are my king. 
You are my king. You are my king. Amen. Amen.